Hello, and welcome to episode two of Heatwork, a podcast about wood firing and wood fire culture. Last time we introduced ourselves as six core hosts, who we are, what we're doing, and why we're doing it. Today we'll be delving into some more details about where we've been, what we've done, and what we're doing. It's just three of us today, Kareen Stoll, she, they, Tara Wilson, she, her, and myself, Mandy Stagant, she, her. Without further ado, let's get to it. So we're going to talk about, I suppose, where we've been and where we are. <laughs> so we've got a loose organization on this today, so we're flying by the seat of our pants a little bit. As usual. <laughs> As usual. It's BMO, really. <laughs> Once you apologize for being that way five times, it's actually a thing, right? Life is. <laughs> Tara, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, I'll start. Hi, I'm Tara Wilson, and I'm just going to talk a little bit about a few different things that I do in my studio that relate to this podcast. I think the first thing I want to talk about is just my studio assistant program. And it's interesting because right now I actually have three men that are working for me. So it's <laughs> funny timing to talk about this. But it does seem like in general, a lot of younger women want to come work with me. And it's not, I don't advertise it as that I only take men or women or anything. I just think that a lot of women are attracted to working in the studio with me. And I think as a role model or mentor, it's been really important to me to provide a space for younger women that want to get into wood firing for them to like come and learn about the process and learn about what it means to be a studio potter, run a studio, all that stuff. So it's pretty similar to other potters that have the apprentice or assistant program. So my assistants, they work eight to 10 hours a week in exchange for studio space. And they do all kinds of stuff, mostly revolved around the wood kiln and prep for the wood firings. Lots of splitting, stacking wood, make glazes, make wadding, cone packs. They reclaim my clay. And then after the firing, cleaning up all the stuff, cleaning kiln shelves, getting ready for the next firing. And then in the studio, obviously, help with cleaning up pots, packing and shipping, computer work. So everything that goes into just running a studio. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I would say the majority of my assistants have been women. And that's just been the breakdown of application. Yeah. You don't get a lot of men who apply. Yeah. Yeah. For But for whatever reason, like I said, right now, there's three men in the studio. <laughs> but yeah, in the past, I would say like three quarters of the assistants have been female. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How's the dynamic with three men, with that being such an unusual setup <laughs> yeah. or such an unusual situation? I don't know if it's just these particular guys, because I have had other guys in the past, but mm -hmm. I don't think they have necessarily big egos, but it's definitely a lot of energy, like a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's a little bit more quiet when it's been women. <laughs> Uh -huh. uh. I think it goes back to just specific personalities more so like I don't want to be like so overarching and of like all men are like this but it is they're making bigger work and when they're all in the studio it's just a lot of energy in there where I feel like when there's and I've had anywhere from one to three assistants so that definitely changes the dynamic when it's just me and one other person versus three other people sure do you find yourself learning by being in that bit of a different situation too, do you end up surprised by some 
of the way you express yourself too? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And I definitely, especially when it, the last few years through COVID and maybe even pre-COVID, just all the Me Too and then the George Floyd, all that activity or movements, it's been really interesting having younger people in the studio because they're like really up on those topics and just way more articulate than I am. And so I feel like I'm learning from them or like staying up on all of the current affairs and sure. And that is a huge thing I've learned from them. I know that's very different than just ceramics. Well, it seems like on the younger generations with world events and yeah, current events and things that there is something very energizing about Gen Z. Any Gen Zer I have met so far has been extremely confident and just unapologetic about mm -hmm. yeah feeling the way they do and the activism that they're involved in and there's something very forthright i think all three of us are probably on the gen x ish scale mm -hmm. and I, I feel like we were kind of the quiet generation <laughs> you know we didn't say much mm -hmm. yeah for sure and millennials got dunked on for being entitled and irresponsible and now the gen z is coming up and they're they're not taking shit. It's really cool to see. <laughs> see, it, it's really, yeah, it's really great to see. Like, I wish I could be a little bit more like that. And I, I think if I didn't have younger people in my studio, I don't know where I would have that interaction and mm -hmm. learn how to do that. <laughs> I see it in the climate movement too. Not that I'm heavily mm -hmm. involved in that, but I just bump into people say at the CSA farm where I spend some time too. There's like some fierce young people there, which are wow, really inspiring and. In the same way as you were saying, mm -hmm. the language and the concepts and mm -hmm. the inclusive way of bringing in all kinds of ripple effects of that kind of, <laughs> there we go, with not being as articulate as. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <So, laughs> that's really cool. In your assistantship program, you've got a lot of emphasis on learning about wood firing, and then there's a lot of learning about how to run a studio and be a full-time studio potter. Is there work critique exchange that goes on too or is it mostly do what you want but here's how to run the place yeah. it's not a formal critique and it varies with the different personalities of people that are working there like I said it's not formal we don't have a set time of we're gonna do a critique now mm -hmm. some people have asked for feedback after we unload a kiln they'll ask me questions and it's more maybe self-directed in that way and then there's other assistants who don't really ask those questions, so I don't push it on them. So there's no formal critique setting in the studio. It's all personality-based, and some of the assistants ask for feedback, such as when we're unloading a kiln or when we have some new pots in the studio, they'll ask me questions and direct it that way. And so I think there's much more dialogue with those particular individuals. There's also been folks that work for me that don't necessarily ask the questions or approach me in that way and like seem a little bit more like standoffish or private about their work. So I don't necessarily push it on them. Mm -hmm. But there is often, I mean, it's just a big open room. So there's often dialogue about pots in general or the larger ceramic scene. And then sometimes just about what we're working on as we're working because they're just 12 feet from me. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then obviously with the firings, I feel like that's the most educational part of it, just seeing how I load and helping with that and then the whole firing process and teaching my method. And I always try to be open 
for feedback to a certain extent of how we fire the kiln. There's been some instances where it's like, uh, this is the way I do it. Like, this is how I want it done. But trying to be open at the same time. Well, I imagine because you're you're a studio potter, so you're making your living mm-hmm. selling your work, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine when it comes to firing the work, experimentation is probably a little bit limited because of yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. You have a certain way that you need your work to come out because you're mm-hmm. you're selling it to, to live on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you probably have a firing schedule for the year, like a fall firing, a mm-hmm. winter firing, spring yeah. firing. Do, do your assistants ever say, hey, can we just do an extra one and try something different? Yeah, we've done that a few times. And I have a train kiln and a really small catenary. So Mm -hmm. it's a little bit flexible. The firing schedule definitely revolves around my commitments and deadlines. But then I've been a little bit open, you know, if I try to be flexible enough that if they have a deadline or they need work or something, it seems to always work out. And the the cat's small enough that we can, it's a pretty short turnaround as far as making and firing it. So it's nice if we do need to get some work out quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. The kiln personality differences between your train kiln and the catenary. Uh-huh. Do the kilns have very different personalities? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I prefer the train, but I don't know. I think there's different things I like about each one. I think the surfaces that I get out of the train is probably more what my work is known for. I put a little bit of soda in the cat, so it's obviously more shiny mm-hmm. and doing a little bit more glazing in there. So it's that has been a little bit of a learning curve kind of figuring out how I want my work to look in there but it's definitely a much different pace of firing it's a faster firing I always think it should be even faster (laughs) but (laughs) I think 24 hours is usually about what our firings are and I'm like this kiln is so little it should be even faster but I've just realized just account for 24 hours but the pace of it the stoking rhythm is so fast and you have to really stay on it the whole time it's not a whole lot of sitting down and chatting and being distracted where the train, once you're at temperature, you're only stoking the main firebox every 20 minutes, half an hour, and you can put a wheelbarrow load of wood in there and sit down and take a break. And it's a little bit more chill in that respect, even though it's a longer firing. Were you going to talk about your work or the conferences that you led the conference there at the Bray? Oh, yeah. Kind of forgot about the the Bray Conference. So yeah, I organized the Cultural Confluence Symposium back in, that was 2018. And I guess thinking about that is interesting because it's really different being on that organizational end. And leading into that, I was always thinking, if I ever organize an event like this, it's going to be 50-50 men and women. And I did a really good job of including a lot of women but it definitely wasn't 50-50. And I just remember trying to reach out to different women and it's there's just a lot more men. And I don't know, hopefully that's changing now, but I think it was a better balance than some other conferences have been in the past of the female-to-male ratio. And then Linda gave the closing remarks, which was awesome. It was I think conferences or different events should be more balanced, but also giving women a platform to be at the bigger roles is also a huge thing. So having Linda as the closing speaker, I thought was really important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
don't know what else I should say <laughs> the event. Well, I was thinking about what Aubrey said in the last episode at the Northwestwood Fire Conference. There was something of an imbalance of gender representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like there was a big imbalance. And she said everybody who was applying to do something seemed to be yeah. cis men. Yep. Joe had to seek out people. And I remember when he and I talked in 2020, and it was right before the pandemic hit, because I mean, originally that conference was supposed to happen in 2020. And he mentioned, he goes, I'm getting a lot of people like far and wide from all over the country and even internationally, but they're all they're all men. <laughs> he goes, I do want some diversity mm-hmm. in the thing, because we were talking, he wanted me to do this panel or and wanted to know anything else I wanted to do. And, and he goes, do you know anybody? And to my detriment, the people I was thinking of were men. Like, yeah. I was like, well, have you talked to this person? Have you talked to this yeah. person? And he was like, I've got enough. I've got enough of that, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and I was like, man, that's, that's really pretty wild. But I know. Even as women, it's like, I felt the same thing. It's like, as a woman, I feel like I should be including all these women. But yeah, I, I definitely had to reach out to them specifically. I can see where Joe's coming from saying that all these men are applying and not women. But I think it's important for whoever's organizing events to do that outreach, mm-hmm. to put in the work and put in the effort to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also wonder if there's some kind of subconscious signal, like since you organized the cultural confluence one as a woman, I wonder if people across the gender spectrum felt a little more comfortable yeah. applying because, oh, hey, it's a female-led conference. Yeah, maybe. I did have to even, I had a few conversations with Linda where she was hesitant to give that closing remark. Oh. And I just remember talking oh. to her like, you have to do this for all of us. You know? <laughs> like, this is your job now. Sorry. <laughs> but it is intimidating for women to be on stage in front of an audience full of men. Sure. Linda's always struck me as a remarkably humble yeah yeah woman she too. is like she just has that personality mm-hmm. where she's like a, a, she's almost like she doesn't understand why people look up to her <laughs> and I'm like it's because mm-hmm. you're amazing <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. well she also delivered the closing remarks at the conference in North Carolina that was mm-hmm. concurrent oh, yes. with the Northwest Fire Conference or just a week before or after, I can't remember. But. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was too bad that they were kind of at the same time. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I remember looking at the lineup there, and it did seem a little more diverse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how it all played out mm-hmm. since we were all in Portland. <laughs> My understanding on the on the East Coast is there there is actually quite a lot more diversity than West and mm-hmm. Northwest, and I, I wonder how much of that is more established civilization. Yeah. I don't think there's anywhere that you could actually call a frontier in America anymore, except maybe in some places in Alaska. But we are a little less established, I guess, as cities and states. And I wonder if if we're just still catching up on Mm -hmm. demographic diversity just in our regions. I was a little bit surprised going to that conference because I mean, it wasn't in Portland, I guess it was an hour or so south, but coming from Montana, which is not very diverse, going to Oregon near Portland area, it's like, wow, there's all of this diversity. And then even seeing like what's happening at East Creek, it seems very diverse. But then at the conference itself, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, like 
the leading roles or the more predominant roles were still all men. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting to me to be in this place that I felt like had much more diversity, but that was still happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we still have a lot yeah. of a lot still of work. Have, still have lots of work to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> baby steps, baby steps. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The other thing I wanted to talk about before we move on to what you guys are doing is this Instagram account that I've been part of. Just want to give the background of that. And sometimes when I think about it for myself personally, I have very mixed feelings about social media. And I go for like long periods of time without even posting on Mm -hmm. my account. So it's interesting what this account has even grown into. I feel like it's very separate from me and my personal work and my personal Instagram. But we started it back in 2018 when I taught a class up at Medalta. And the class was all women, which has happened to me quite a few times. Again, not intentionally. It's just those are the people that signed up to take this firing workshop from me. Was I think five or six women. We were all firing the wood kiln and then hanging out and chatting during the firing. We were making this list of other women that the participants could look up and research for inspiration or whatever. And I realized I'm always making this list when I'm teaching. And I'm like, why don't I just write it down so that I don't have to like brainstorm every time and re-figure it out. And so we were like writing down this list and then we're like, well, where can we put this that anyone can access it. And that was the impetus to start this Instagram. We'd also had initially talked about, oh, who should we feature on this? Should it only be professional artists, all these different parameters? And that just felt weird. Or I don't know, it just, how do you even define those things? So the account is just very inclusive. It's any woman who wood fires or non-binary people that wood fire and nobody is checking up on this. <laughs> Nobody's gatekeeping it. No. Yeah, yeah, that's great. If you say that you're a woodfire, you can be included. It's interesting, too, because sometimes I do get messages and it's like, how do I be part of this? And it's like, everyone you is are. part of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Welcome. <laughs> Mostly you just need to let me know. I did have a list on my website or a link to like a PDF. I haven't been great about adding to it. Also, the list is who the account follows. So if somebody is trying to find other women that would fire, you can just go to that, you know, how when you look on an account and see who they follow, that account only follows women who would fire. So when somebody messages me and says, I want to be included, I just go to that account and follow that person. So that's the list. And then just recently, I've taken back over the administrative part of it. So my assistants have been running it for quite a while and I've taken back over and put a call out. So occasionally we put a call out. It's like, do you want to be featured or do you want to recommend somebody? So we're constantly looking for people to feature. So if you want to be featured or if you want to recommend someone, just send us a message to that account. And just for an idea of how much this account has grown, how many following and how many followers are there? Let me open it. Yeah, it's it's a lot. So yeah. 6,435 followers, which is really cool. Oh my God. Yeah. We follow 360 people, which I'm sure there's more out there. There's like, more. Yeah. I feel like <laughs> I'm learning about more people all the time. It looks really cool when you scroll through the, the whole page because we do two images of work and then an image of the artist. 
So when you scroll through, it lines up really nicely. We've done 455 posts, which is, a, I want to say, around 150 people. And I think there's been a few people that we've repeated, but mostly it's, there's so many women out there that yeah. at some point we might start repeating. Or I don't know, I've been thinking of other formats or other ideas that we could do with this. But so far, we're just doing featured artists. It's it's so great. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's so exciting to see that. I think, I don't remember, there's also the Hots in Action Badass Women account. You see a lot mm-hmm. of good stuff on there. And I don't, I, I know at one point the Me Too movement showed up in Ceramaland several mm-hmm. years ago. And I, I was interested to see the flourishing of, of these accounts in the wake of that, where it was mm-hmm. just like, okay, well, let's make these people more visible because they're here. Mm-hmm. Another one is not necessarily a separate account, but Brian Hopkins was putting forth a, an extended effort to share yeah. the work of underrepresented people and doing a great job of that. Yeah, I'm with you, Tara. I have such mixed feelings about social media. And I'm like, I just don't want to spend more time on the damn internet. (laughs) But it's interesting to see how powerful a force it can be. Mm -hmm. We've all seen the negative effects of social media, I think. But it's neat to see also the positive effects that it can have and the sheer numbers of people that it can reach and Mm -hmm. connect can be so reassuring and and just need to see. I'm still terrible at doing it, but yeah. <laughs> Can be a force for good. Yeah, it's been good having assistants help me. And then also when I have been doing it just recently, I just work it into my work schedule. So mm-hmm. I just, every Monday I've been posting. And so every Monday I just spend a little bit of time working on it. And it it is time consuming. Mm-hmm. I mean, sending out messages to artists and then organizing their images and their text and just a lot of corresponding. So it does take time and it, I've just blacked out Monday mornings. I do this thing and I should do that for my own social media. <laughs> <laughs> Set a certain day and time that this is when I do this thing, but I don't know, for whatever reason, I haven't done that. For me, it, I don't know, maybe it doesn't seem so self-promoting, like doing this other thing. Mm-hmm. I feel good about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can also feel good about self-promotion. It's okay to feel good about that, too. Yeah. It's funny, just a little aside, Tara. I was in high school when I was first acquainted with your work in Ceramics Monthly. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember only two names from that period when I was looking at Ceramics Monthly, which one could say is a different form of self-promotion when you present work Mm -hmm. for, you know, minuscule columns. It was one of your pictures, Mm -hmm. and it made an impression on me, obviously. That's great. Rarely do I connect the work with the name. Mm -hmm. I think I was in grad school when you were an emerging artist at Ensika, maybe? Okay, yeah. I think that was in Portland, too. Ah. I think it was a Portland Ensika. 2005, was that? Yeah, 2005 or 6. Okay. I may have been 2006, but I remember going to your... um, emerging artist talk and being a little bit blown away to be honest because I hadn't seen so much of the wood fire work that I had seen and I I wasn't wood firing at the time so I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to it but it always seemed like big burly rough you know like machismo like and then you were putting these images up and it was just like this because your pots are sexy right yeah (laughs) they're super feminine and they're super sexy and I think that was the first time 
I saw that. I saw a correlation of, of femininity with wood firing and just this real elegance in the work. And that, that made a big impression mm -hmm. on me. It doesn't all have to be rights and vulcus Mm -hmm. you know, slapping the clay together and see what stands up, you know? <laughs> That's not exactly what they did. But yeah, yeah. These rough, masculine, giant forms of, you know, inch-thick clay. And I, I that was my impression of wood firing before I saw your talk. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was really neat to, to see quite the contrast on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that. And that made a lasting impression on me, even though I wasn't even, I wasn't even making pots at the time. I was making big, burly... <laughs> sculpture <laughs> coincidentally <laughs> coincidentally so, but yeah so it was just like this an introduction of this i don't know this sense of balance and elegance that i hadn't seen before it was pretty eye-opening yeah. gentleness thanks yeah Thank mm. light touch that you make look very easy mm -hmm. but i know it's not <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the mid-roll. It's interesting going through the editing process on a podcast. Once you get past the horror of hearing your own voice, you also spend some time reflecting on some of the things you said in, in the moment and maybe some implications and interpretations. So I'm going to try to account for a couple of things mentioned in this episode. First up are the generalizations I personally assign to Gen X and Millennials. While it's true that Gen X is known to be relaxed, blasé, and whatever about life at issues, I can attest from first-hand experience that Gen X is far from quiet, and some of the most avid activists I know are Gen Xers. I also lumped myself into this demographic, which I do with some reservation, because there seems to be some contention about where folks between 1977 and 1983 fit into the age demographics. They called us Xenials at one point, though I much prefer the Jedi generation, as they bookended us with the years the original Star Wars trilogy came out, a set of movies that was absolutely central during our formative years. We're the in-betweeners as we grew up analog, but we're still young enough to adapt when the tech age began. Inevitably, some of us identify more with X and some more with millennials. As an 80 baby Luddite, I do identify more with X, but that isn't true across the board. And some people now bookend Gen X with 1980, so uh, whatever, I guess. Just relax. Also, I mentioned that millennials get dunked on for being lazy and entitled, and I want to be very clear that that reputation is so undeserved that it may as well come from some other planet. After being told as children that the world is their oyster, millennials came of age in the wake of Columbine, 9-11, and multiple foreign wars, entered the workforce amid the 2008 economic crisis, have drowned in debt from student loans, and are facing the collapse of social security, the environment, and basically civilization. You all have been through some serious shit in the trenches, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Also, also, there is some talk about diversity and demographics in terms of the timeline of civilization and the American frontier, how the West and the Northwest are less so-called settled than the East Coast. This is a woefully Eurocentric point of view. It is, of course, important to remember the scores of indigenous peoples who had long populated and established civilization in the West and Northwest before the white pioneer tide surged westward and did its best to erase them and their relevance. I would like to acknowledge these people now and their relevance, importance, and rights to the land, culture, and livelihood taken from them. We would also like to acknowledge that Oregon in particular is lacking in diversity due to deliberately racist laws that date from the 19th century. These laws are systemically black exclusionary in nature to discourage black people from moving here. They started with an enforced temporary residency, followed by an outright prevention of black people from owning land or making contracts. These laws were repealed nearly a century ago, but have had a lasting effect on the demographics within Oregon. 
It should also be noted that it wasn't until 2002 that the racist language was actually removed from the state constitution altogether, and that the vote to remove it wasn't as, shall we say, unanimous as one might hope. In short, folks, there's still a lot of work to do and reparations to be made. Let's get back to it. Well, Kareen, Ahem. <laughs> you want to talk about stuff? <laughs> Life, the universe, and everything. 42. Yeah. 40 <laughs> I'm Kareen Stahl, and currently I live in my studio in Battleground, Washington, about 50 minutes away from Portland, and my dear man and I are stewarding 23 acres in a different location. So I'm renting my studio. He's a carpenter, contractor kind of guy who (laughs) I've known him for so long. And both of us have really cared about not to say the carbon footprint is one way of putting it. It's more like just an awareness of how we use resources and the energy that goes into and the money that goes into, say, construction processes. I think as we look into a future of increasingly dramatic climate change, that the net, this grand assessment of what goes into our material goods needs to be a a much more careful calculation if we're going to move into a future where more people have access to food and <laughs> whatever. I sound kind of doomsday, and, and, I, and I don't mean to be that way, but what I'm trying to say is that that's the context for part of how he and I are envisioning my future studio kiln site and the cycles of collecting the trees from the forest, which needs to be thinned for burning right on site, making a system about that that is manageable and maybe one could say a closed loop in terms of that resource. Similarly, he got a tractor and as soon as he started excavating for the structures, the future studio and the kiln shed and the shop, he found a whole bunch of rocks, big rocks, big boulders, but also just a ton of rocks of various sizes. And so instead of paying for road material imported from some nearby gravel mine, he took a lot of time and a lot of energy to build roadways. So that's another question of what do we spend? Do we spend money on a material coming in from outside? Or do we spend time and our own energy in order to do something from scratch? We had reasons to do it the way the way we've been doing it. And each of these considerations are, are very site-specific to each other person who might be trying to create something larger scale for just themselves. I mean, it's a beautiful property. We both just want to live there because it's peaceful and according to our dreams. But it's been quite a <laughs> it's been quite a story too of the past six years of how we've gotten to where we are. I still feel like I should write a blog or (laughs) eventually a book or something. Well, I mean, it was no small task you all took on. I mean, you started with this. Well, it wasn't even a raw piece of land. It was a mismanaged piece of land. You're not just starting from scratch. You're trying to undo 
damage. Oh, <laughs> you know, like, they, 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 like you're trying to undo mismanagement from the past. Yeah. And it's just, my God, it's just such a huge undertaking you all are doing out there. Yeah, it's really something. We found so much trash. <laughs> Including the kitchen sink. First the kitchen the sink. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> <laughs> he was like white thing poking up out of the ground first thing he hits with the tractor is the kitchen sink <laughs> no way yeah truckloads after truck and and he recycled the steel he like took apart things in order to not just take it to the dump he very carefully went through everything and forest management is a really huge element of that too because of government policies over the years, you know, areas that might have been reforested in certain ways were not. And so our, our forest looks exciting, but it's actually unhealthy in a lot of ways. So we, we hired a permaculture-minded forester to give us guidance on thinning practices in particular, and Joel started doing that. <laughs> and now I have 60 cords of wood, split, stacked, covered, beautifully... <laughs> lined up like soldiers just like and no kiln <laughs> but <laughs> you need a kiln to burn it in though yeah and i have a gorgeous orchard because there used to be a sawmill on site and he found a whole bunch of the composted sawdust and now it's beautiful soil and moved it into a baby orchard and i'm slowly planting in it so we still have no electricity or potable water. We have beautiful creeks and big visions. And but yeah, it's it's a story. Yeah, I will say as, as somebody who's been out there intermittently over the last six years, it, it always blows my mind when I go out there how different it looks mm -hmm. every, every time. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> like the first time you had all those baby fir trees dotting yes. the area, and that was when you taught me how to use a yep. chainsaw, and that was we were taking down those sticks. <laughs> and then the next time, I think I came out, that whole area was just turned over it was like all black yep. it was just soil like and now you've got your orchard set up and you've got the area cleared for the kiln pad mm -hmm. i have to imagine it's very feels very slow moving progress for me yeah but it is always very different every time i go out there like the amount of crap you all have done <laughs> he's a truly amazing man high energy very loving and he's doing most of the work i'm doing plenty of stuff but yeah it's mostly him and a tractor and a tractor. Which keeps breaking. <laughs> but yeah, a, a tractor, which is straining under the upper. Dear John. <laughs> yeah, so that is the long-term and short-term goal of where I am in terms of being able to interact with the wood-firing community. In My ideal way would be the kiln that I want to make is kind of like a anagama turned around in a U-turn. So... <laughs> It's a wacky design that grew out of... Another wacky design. Yes. <laughs> I know so many people have said you should not design your kiln based on the bricks you have. But I have 12 tons of bricks. And I have a, an idea of... Well, I mean, originally it was a train kiln on a U-turn and Mandy quipped. Only Kareen would ask a train to make a U-turn. <laughs> but I think I'm going to go with more of an onagama type firebox. About 100 cubic feet. So definitely a, a team effort. And I really love that because I, I love the space efficiency that comes with 
a slightly larger kiln. I made a 10-minute talk at last year's Ensika, so not sure exactly when this will drop, but anyone who still has access to the recordings of last year's Ensika can check that out. And that's about our land use practices and also the future design of the kiln. At the Northwest Wood Fire Conference, I made a presentation also about the Tin Man, which was the kiln that I had in Portland, also on rental property, which was a wackadoodle little thing, about <laughs> 55 cubic feet stacking area. Totally round kiln because the bricks were curved. It Yeah, the bricks, I got high alumina bricks that were curved, I don't know how to say this, on their edge. They would have been liners for a paper mill, very caustic. I don't know what they used to grind up paper, but they made a six-foot diameter chamber. And then I, for a long time, have been enamored with using waste vegetable oil as a fuel. And so with Linda Christensen's commentary, I figured out how to get those efficient Taiwanese burners to inject the oil into a subfloor under that chamber. So the chamber sat on a square floor and then underneath were four channels. So the outer channels were a really long firebox and then the inner channels could have been a downdraft because there were holes in the floor. Ended up using it more like a crossdraft because there was a flue in the, in the back of that round chamber as well. So we would start with wood and that wood came in through one might think of a bory box shape. Those little bory boxes were only good to about a thousand degrees of interior temperature. And then at that point, there was a warmth in the firebox heat, which the vegetable oil needed to ignite. So we would maintain a bed of coals in part of that channel, turn on the waste vegetable oil, and then the coals became a kind of wick and the vegetable oil became the fuel more so than the wood. And the two burned together really well. So we would get wood-fired-like results, more clean in general, but sometimes we would, I don't mean to say more clean, but I mean less ash in general. It wasn't drippy. Well, it didn't have to be drippy, no. But we would also deliberately extend the wood-burning portion of the firing in order to deposit more ash into certain regions of the kiln before melting it with the vegetable oil. So that kiln actually worked really well once we figured out how to run it. And Mandy was there as my studio assistant originally, and I wish I could still have capacity to have an assistantship program as well. I don't have space in my current studio, and of course my future studio is a nice piece of flattened mud right now, but... <laughs> <laughs> It'll happen. We'll It'll get happen. there. <laughs> that was great. I mean, it, it was really great. What, what you were talking about earlier, Tara, about the challenge and the energy that you get from interacting with some of the younger people. Mandy and I just got along swimmingly, and I've really enjoyed having you as a friend still <laughs> after all this time. Shucks. Likewise. <laughs> it's been very cool. And that, it was kind of funny how all that came about, too, because I was fresh out of grad school. Mm -hmm. This was 
summer of 2011 and I moved out to Portland cold. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't have a job, I didn't have a studio. I knew two people in the whole town. Corrine wasn't one of them yet. And one of the incoming grad students at USU put us in touch with each other. Uh, Joshua put us in touch with each other because Corrine was looking for an assistant and I needed a space to work. And so I came out during one of their firings. I guess you, you all were firing that summer. And we just sat and had a long, long conversation. <laughs> and it was it was kind of funny because I had this momentary crisis of really wanting to work in your studio and work with you and, and with the Woodkiln and wanting to learn from you. But what I had been doing up until that point had been this large scale sculpture and, and the space that you have in your carriage house studio was a, you know, a little four by eight space. And I thought, there's no way in hell I'm going to keep making the work I've been <laughs> making. And so I was like, well, do I say no to this and try to find a situation where I can make that work? Or do I do this about face and change everything. And well, I changed everything like a wise mm -hmm. person. And that really, that was the right decision, I think. But yeah, it was uh, two years of a really lovely camaraderie. I mean, I was working as her assistant in exchange for the space, but there was a, a really lovely friendship has bloomed yeah. out of that. So I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Onward. <laughs> And, and honestly, what a hell of a kiln to learn on oh, yeah. the Tin Man was. Just, yeah. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> joked that you could flip it upside down at some point because that was part of the firing process. So, uh, Like wood fire pancake. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Just like cobbling together different ideas. It's a fun challenge. It was a neat kiln. Never seen anything like it. Tin Man. And a great community grew out of the people that I was able to invite there, too. And I don't know if I would have met nearly as many cool folks if I hadn't had that kiln. Because I was teaching a little bit, working as a tech a little bit, but one can only connect so much with the community through, say, a gallery. Eutectic didn't even exist at that time. Eutectic being uh, now happily in Portland, representing some great people. But yeah, all sorts of connections were flowing out of that opportunity. It's interesting how something, because as kilns go, it was a relatively short-lived mm -hmm. kiln. 13 firings. Over seven years or something like that, maybe six years. Yeah, could be. But I think it was in a lot of ways a, an interesting catalyst hub for a lot of relationships mm -hmm. that happened mm -hmm. in the Portland area. Like a lot of us, I met Pate and Zach around mm -hmm. that kiln. I, obviously, I met you mm -hmm. and, and went on to fire with them in many other places. And if it hadn't been for that, I don't know that I ever would have run into them at all. Right, right. I think the Tin Man was an interesting, short-lived but significant cultural earmark mm -hmm. of Northwest wood firing. Mm -hmm. And now, just to segue... I have fired at some of the other smaller or larger Anagamas in the region with Mandy often. And we were invited to fire with a whole bunch of women, so all women's firing. And we had a blast up there. And then Joe invited Mandy and I to lead a, an all women's firing at East Creek, which was, well, magic. <laughs> It was. It was magic. Yeah. It was such a strange thing, too, because 
we were at one of the reduction cool firings in January following that time up at Port Orchard. And I was just talking about how wonderful an experience it was. It was a smaller crew. I mean, it was only, it was an Anagama firing, but I think there were only 12 women firing it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it wasn't a huge crew, but it was just this really, we were the newbies in there, like sort of trying to toe our way in carefully, mm-hmm. you know, because when you come into a new community, you don't really know what to expect or the kind of personalities right. you'll find. And we just found ourselves just welcomed wholesale totally. into this group. And, and we really felt like, equals mm-hmm. among this group of women who knew this kiln better than we did, obviously, but they just, they didn't even blink about us being there and were excited to have us there. And then the whole energy through that whole firing was just really neat. It was very comfortable the whole time. So I was just talking to Joe about it offhand. I was like, yeah, we just, Karina and I just had this really great time with all these women mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, up in Washington. And he said, do that here. Mm-hmm. And high anxiety, high imposter syndrome mm-hmm. happens a lot in my life. I had this automatic I said, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And Joe was like, why? Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of firing. He goes, well, you have to do something for the first time. So Karina and I talked about the logistics of it. And and this was a good 18 months ahead of... We, we picked a date. We were like, okay, how about May, June 2019? So we were 18 months ahead of that. And we were trying to compile a list of women. We were like, okay, who do we know? And I felt like we had the list of 10 women we fired with a lot. And I was like, okay, but we're going to need a crew of 25 or 30 because it's a big kiln. It's a long firing. And so we just started assembling lists of women who might be interested mm-hmm. in firing, but we had no idea. And just all the basically female potters in the Portland area. And we invited the crew that was up in Washington too and sent out this preliminary probing exploratory email saying, you know, we just wanted to gauge the interest in this just to see if it was even going to be feasible. And I guess we emailed probably about 40 people. Quite a list. We didn't care about experience level, really. I mean, like some people were very experienced. Some people were total rookies, and that was fine. Well, I think we were even actively hoping that there would be different. Like we really wanted to open up that space. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't want to be selective on experience level. We we didn't want to be like you have to have your druthers about you because, hell, we certainly didn't have our druthers about us with this kiln or anything. So I sent out this exploratory email to about 40 women and said, there's about 150 cubic feet. If you could tell me if you're interested and maybe how much work you could bring to it. And in two days, the kiln was sold out. Yeah. 18 months ahead of time. The level of enthusiasm just from the outset was staggering. Like I felt like the most popular kid in school for a few <laughs> days. Just, my email inbox is filled with people like saying, yes, we want to be a part of this. And so we kind of, we just went from there. You know, we had a big wood prep day that summer and then some people came and went as their lives changed or whatever, but we had a solid crew of about 30 women. I loved the way that because we were so open, the conversations became, there was a kind of equality that came along because Some people would ask innocent questions, not just of me or Mandy or Lori Allen was the the third shift leader who had a lot of experience with that kiln. And because we were getting some pretty innocent questions, I found myself, I mean, occasionally maybe a little bit impatient, that's maybe me being self-conscious, but really focusing on how to explain something in a way that was accessible and giving everybody the time and then checking in, like, did that make sense? Did I say that in a way that you understand? Taking a minute, say, at a shift change, 
to explain to everybody assembled, which might be a good 12, 15 people at a one-hour overlap shift change, okay, this is what they've been doing. Everybody was contributing to sharing the information of what they had just finished on their shift, and then the newcomers really getting acclimated to what were the trouble spots, what were the successes, and and taking it from there. So there was a I think a thoroughness to that communication yeah. that was not really something that I've experienced all the time. Well, we shook things up a little bit like with the shift changes, because you and Lori and I had eight-hour right. shifts, but the crews actually had six-hour shifts. Yep, yep. So we had, like, I would come on in the evening, and I had two hours with the crew that was already there mm -hmm. before the new crew showed up, and so that gave me a chance to sort of get the rhythm of, I didn't like jump right. in and take charge and make changes. I would sit back and watch what they were doing because they had a rhythm. They had their rhythm going, they had what they were doing. And so I would get to sit back for a couple hours, watch what they were doing, watch what the kiln was doing and make decisions about changes to make over that two hours. And then when my crew came on, we would make our adjustments and then get into our own rhythm. And I feel like that was an overlap that made things a little smoother, I think, with those mm -hmm. transitions. Because sometimes with shift changes, they can be suddenly abrupt changes happen and the kiln gets confused. Mm -hmm. It's like the kiln stalls out or jumps ahead or whatever, because like suddenly there's this new people, new energy, and not necessarily paying attention to what's been going on and just jump on to what's next. And I think that our overlap with that helped to smooth that out and keep things a little more consistent through the whole firing. And, and that is a kiln where you have to play a long game. You have to be patient with it. The kiln itself is so long and you, you really have to do that heat work aspect for a, for a lot longer than you're comfortable with. You know, sometimes you get to the, the nail biting point where you're like, God damn it, is this thing ever going to go? And that transition time helped to keep that smooth, mm -hmm. I guess. And, and also you and Lori and I met once a day mm -hmm. to talk about how mm -hmm. it was going. Mm -hmm. And that was never something I'd encountered on a kiln before, was just actually meeting once a day saying, okay, here's where we are, here's the goals for the next day, and you know how who can achieve what on their shifts to get us there. And you and I met with Pate, who has a lot of experience with that kiln, mm -hmm. well beforehand in order to just get the lay of the land from him. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there was a lot of question and answer and lack of assumptions, I think, is a really huge element. Yeah. On, on the one hand, I felt like you and I were both very cold on that yeah. kiln because neither one of us had ever loaded it. I don't think you had ever fired nope. out there. And I had fired out there. I'd never led a crew. I'd never led a firing. I'd never loaded it. And so we were. <laughs> I, I feel like we ran into some hiccups with the loading that we had to work out. But for the most part, we were aware of that yeah. ignorance, I guess, and tried to preempt it the best we could by hitting up more experienced minds with that particular kiln. And so I don't know, it was just the whole experience though, like with the, just the all female crew. And it's not that there weren't men around. There were, I joke, we should hang a no boys allowed sign on the entrance that Lou was around, Joe was around, yeah. but some partners and husbands were around, but everybody, all the work in the kiln and all the crew were all women. And there was just this weird, amazing energy that went with that and the din of conversation <laughs> through the entire firing it was deafening because mm -hmm. there was just this exuberance going on and just these women being together with other women and there was just this i don't know it was just relaxing yeah. in a high stress hard work sort of way and 
the outdoor kitchen was clean. And <laughs> for the first time ever. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of solid organization around mealtimes and people bringing food enough to make for a whole crew. I don't think anybody ever fended for themselves on a single meal on that firing. And that was a huge part of it, too, is the community just surrounding the food. But most potters are familiar with that. <laughs> for sure. I would say in general, I don't know, I, I know in my own studio and my firings, just being like very prepared and very organized. I was noticing how you were explaining the way that you and Kareen organized that firing and did your research and talked to people who had fired the kiln. And it sounded like you had put a lot of effort into the planning and organizing. And I feel like a lot of times when I fire with women, that seems to be the case where and again, it's not all the time, but it does seem like in general, firing with men, it's like they rely more just on their strength and brute force or just even the sheer numbers of them because they know like, oh, there's going to be all these people at the loading, like we can get all of this stuff done then mm -hmm. where I generally try to have it all organized, all my wood prepped and ready to go, mm -hmm. like every little detail is organized and prepared. Yeah, we had a weekend the summer before where we just, all we did was go up to the woodlot that at that time was up at East Creek and we just chopped side stoke the whole weekend and it was roasting mm -hmm. hot. Like it was so hot. And, yeah. and you know, it was a good like 20, 25 of us there just working our asses off. And we probably chopped a, I don't know how many cords of side stoke we chopped, but we got it all done. Like we didn't have to do mm -hmm. any, any side stoke prep through the whole loading or firing or anything like that. All we had to do was go up the hill to get it. Yeah. And that was a little rewarding for me is to have those kinds of things prepared and done. And then you can turn all of your attention to the loading yeah. and which is involved with that killing. Yeah. The firing and what, yeah, what's happening at the moment. Yeah. And the crew and making sure everybody's got what they need because mm -hmm. everybody's out there wadding their work or glazing or, you know, and everything. Yeah. And it just, it's always going to be a little bit of a zoo. And so the less of a zoo we can make it ahead of time, the better. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It was funny that wood prep weekend, we were just roasting hot, trying not to overheat. And we'd get down for the day and we'd go down to the creek because there is actually a creek mm -hmm. in East Creek and okay. just sit in the creek and cool off. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it was almost like a coven of witches, but in like a really great way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. We were talking about the way that women plan things sometimes a little more thoroughly than than men do. Yeah. Not, I mean, not a, it's not a competition. But Tara was talking about doing the research into the kiln and doing our wood prep ahead of time and doing the meal planning that we did ahead of time. We just did a lot more planning in general than often goes into these firings and how how that paid off. Everything ran very smoothly, and especially at East Creek, where sometimes there are constricted spaces. I feel like we were able to have a good flow around that kiln and around just the daily activity of life on the work site, or <laughs> Joel would call it a job site. A job site. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the, the conversation levels were off, were sometimes deafening, sometimes to the point, because this Anagama has benches up along the sides where the side stoke alleys are, and we call it the peanut gallery. Yeah. And at times, I even had to throw people 
the bystanders out of the peanut gallery because we couldn't hear, the crew couldn't hear each other because there was so much excited conversation going on. And it was really loving the conviviality, but it, it, it actually reaching a point where it was interrupting the shift flow, you know, and like being, all right, guys, we are here to fire a kiln and we need to be able to hear each other to do that. But it, it was also a delight to have to make that interruption because it meant that everybody was getting along so well. There was just that much camaraderie going on. Yeah. And it was just really reassuring and neat to see all of that. Well, I, I would love to know of other kilns where this sort of firing or firings that also include a lot of non-binary people might be occurring in other places in the country and the world to compare notes, make friends, and learn. Yeah, I totally agree. We do have an email address up and running now. It's heatworkpodcast at gmail.com. So if anybody who's listening to this would like to tell us about their own all-female or female and non-binary crews, we would really like to hear about it. Yeah. Because I think it's the kind of energy that we could stand to see more of all over the place. So it's cool to find out about people doing projects like that. Have you, have you ever been part of an all-female crew, Tara? Yeah, there's been a few, like I said, when I've taught firing workshops where it's just been all-female participants because mm -hmm. that's who registered. Again, not intentionally, maybe. But I know in Missoula, at the Clay Studio Missoula, they have a group, and I think they were firing once a year. I'm not sure if they're still actively doing that. Um, but I think they just call themselves or the Lady Fire, I believe is what it's called. <laughs> and they're firing the Clay Studios kiln. Oh, that's cool. And then through running the Instagram account, I have been aware of a few other groups. Mm -hmm. I can't think of them off the top of my head. Yeah, it was just a really neat space that Joe invited us to make for ourselves mm -hmm. where everyone was comfortable. And, and Joe, I think it was last year was the first time I was out at East Creek again since the pandemic had started. And he, he made a comment to me, he goes, ever since that firing that you and Kareen did, I'm just, I'm surrounded with women. <laughs> and I was like, that's a good thing. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> but you just made this comment that the lasting effect of it, though, was that he goes, there's now this. I don't think we had any gender fluid or non binary people on that crew. And that is actually one of the things we looked at as something that, to improve in the future if we ever get a chance to do it again. But he's had women out there and he's had non binary and trans and, you know, gender fluid folks out there. And I think he saw this explosion in diversity in the wake of that firing. And it's not people coming back for more exclusive crews. Like they are joining just the general crews in the wake of that because they came out to that place that first time and loved it and became comfortable with the place and the atmosphere and the culture out there and have been back and have been back repeatedly. And that, I think, might be the most desired result of a firing like that is to create a space for folks who maybe don't always have the opportunity or the access and then give them that initial access so that they can come back and do more of it just in general. Mm -hmm. And I was really pleased to see that. Lilith has been out there repeatedly ever since. Annalise has been out there repeatedly ever since. And a lot of those people just needed that initial invitation, I guess. And now they're part of it. Yeah, it's that introduction. It's a safe space to be introduced to the community. And yeah, I have noticed that too. And I think sometimes there's sort of this negative reaction or viewpoint of these sort of events, these all women or non-binary folks 
in a sense that that could be becoming too inclusive in that regard. But I think that's maybe not the end goal. It's just allowing this introduction for folks that wouldn't are maybe too intimidated to participate in a more male-dominated firing. It's a place where they can get introduced to the process and then hopefully continue and be more comfortable in a normal firing where it's mixed genders. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I guess I don't remember ever hearing anything negative about having an exclusive female crew. I think most of the men we've fired with out here also understood that need. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And didn't have a problem with it at all because honestly, they don't have a problem accessing kilns. Yeah. All of them are firing all over the place all the time. And so it wasn't, I think the day that cis men are having a hard time getting onto crews because they're all female and non binary, you know, like that would be the turning point where that becomes That'd an be issue. Awesome. But, but I don't, yeah, be awesome. <laughs> I don't ever see us getting there where like men have a hard time yeah. with firing if they want to do it. So like, I guess I'm not too worried about that. And, the men I've talked to also don't seem too worried about that. So yeah, our, our one sticking point was looking at trying to assess the diversity of that crew of women. We were not asking ourselves at that time about trans and non-binary folks. Like we that just wasn't mm-hmm. a question on our radar. And it is now, it has been since, but like when we're looking for ways to improve, it was like, well, okay, yes, we could have, we should have been paying attention to that as well. And we just weren't. And then when I was thinking about the ethnic diversity of that crew, there was some, and I think as Aubrey pointed out in the last episode, that the crews you get around wood kilns tend to be microcosms of the larger culture. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe we were a bit reflective of that. You came out to the Northwest and thought it was very diverse compared to Montana, but we actually Mm -hmm. have a bad rap for being a mostly white culture. And I think... I think the level of diversity we had on that crew probably reflected about the level of diversity that the Northwest has, and which could obviously be better. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting a few years later to be assessing it and asking sorts of questions like that. I do want to say a little bit that there's a conundrum here where negative or, or constructive criticism that isn't just glowing would be sometimes maybe hard to find which is to say that a person with negative feedback might not feel comfortable providing it. Mm. So I, I say that because a friend of mine who, who was on the crew had initial concerns about it being all female. Mm. She was like, yeah, I think that a, a healthy mix of gender and, of course, mix in all kinds of different ways is the healthiest configuration. And she was quite hesitant to join the firing initially Mm -hmm. but she only expressed that to me in person and only and I I can't imagine her critiquing the situation to a wider group of people so I feel like that's an important point because if we can't ask for constructive criticism then we're not going to hear it it's true how do we make sure that to hear voices that even have commentary about our good-hearted efforts. (laughs) No, that is an excellent point. And I do hope that people didn't hold back on that. I don't remember anybody saying anything negative about that firing. And you're right, it might be because they felt like they couldn't. But I hope that isn't the case. (laughs) Right, of course. And I think, like I say, it was good-hearted effort. But I I do want to try to figure out how to solicit voices that 
would be even more and more quiet. <laughs> well, I guess I have a question. The one who expressed misgivings about not having gender diversity on, on that crew, what did her experience wind up being? Because you said that was her, her attitude going into it. Yeah, I think she had a great time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. I think she would still hold her position mm -hmm. on that, but she did have a great time. I think maybe that's what I was leaning towards with my previous comment, but I think I know some women that would have the same feelings of, of this person you're speaking of. And I think it's not really our end goal to make every firing that's all women, but it's just creating this space so that we can experience that and allow a safe space for new people to be introduced to wood firing, but then continue and go on to other firings that are more diverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to understand, I think by having an all-women firing, you really understand the different roles and how different personalities, whether it's a man or a woman, how you can fulfill those roles or plug people into different roles using people's strengths and weaknesses and all of that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To be very clear, I do not want to spend the rest of my life on only female crews. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your only queer crews or only female and non-binary. It was not a thing like this is going to be the shift that's going to be the only thing we ever do again because I have fired with a lot of really lovely men and I yeah. and I would like to continue to do that because some of them are very good friends of mine and just lovely to work with. But yeah, it's like you said it was about creating a space for an introduction and the fact that a lot of these people have come back to East Creek and participated in the mixed crews and they feel comfortable doing that now. And if that firing was the initial impetus that got them to do that, then I would say that was that was ideal. That was the ideal outcome for that. Yeah. Just get people there and, and give them the environment where they felt comfortable learning and they felt comfortable asking questions and even teaching. Because I think that is a common hindrance to women on mixed crews is just feeling like we don't have the voices. Mm -hmm. It always seems like there's somebody with a louder voice. And women taking on a passive role sometimes on those mixed crews and, and just going with a flow. And I would have liked to have learned a lot more about wood firing probably from all female crews because I would have felt more comfortable asking dumb questions, you know, asking the dumb rookie questions. I think there's a culture-wide feel when, with women participating in mixed crews of anything, not just kilns, but in the workplace or anything like that. It's, this feeling that you have to know twice as much and work twice as hard and step up twice as much and be twice the team player in order to keep your footing. And I think that is also true of wood firing. If you're the only woman or if, you're there, if there's two women on a crew of 15 men, you don't really feel like you can speak up much, you know, like unless people specifically ask you your opinion. There is this automatic hindrance there of making waves or kicking up too much dust. And I think that's a cultural inheritance that we have as women to be a little bit secondary in our assertiveness. And so I think the point of creating a crew like that is to remove that hindrance and let people speak where otherwise they might not feel like they could. Yeah. I like what Tara said about it being a, a bridge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we're hoping to do it again. Maybe, maybe at some point <laughs> <laughs> we're in the barrel talking stages of that. So I don't want to say too much about it. Yeah. We can get into that. That, that might be a whole episode unto itself. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to add about where we've been, where we are, what we're doing? Where are we going? Where are we going? More, more, more. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, anyway, like we said earlier, we do really want to hear from people who have their own events and projects and endeavors going on. Karine and I are pretty 
entrenched in the Northwest and Terra is pretty entrenched in Montana. So um, we know there's lots more wood firing going on all over the place. So please, please, please let us know what you're up to. And Kareen might be in, in Minnesota more and more upcoming. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Kareen might be present in Minnesota. So In the St. Croix Valley area. Many changes coming for you. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Well, thank you both for having this conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Mandy and Corrine. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it's been wonderful. And, and also, I just want to add too, please let us know if there's other topics that people are interested in that we should include in this podcast. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do want to reach out and we want to hear. We don't just want to hear our own voices all the time. We do want to hear <laughs> other people and, and dive in and see see what all is going on everywhere. Yeah, please be in touch. All right. Well, I guess we'll sign off on that. Thanks for listening. And that's it for this round of heat work. Thank you for listening. As a closing note, I'd like to mention that Firing While Female, the all-female firing that Corrine and I led in 2019 at East Creek, had a follow-up exhibition at Ash Street Project in Portland. The entire endeavor was partially funded with a grant from RAC, the Regional Arts and Culture Council, which serves the art community in Portland and surrounding areas in the Northwest. Corrine and I would like to thank the Firing While Female crew for that incredible experience, as well as Joe Robinson, Lou and Lori Allen, Chris Pate, Thomas Orr, Joanna Bloom, Madeline Dubin, and Sarah Chenoweth Davis for all the hosting, help, contribution, curating, jurying, support, and love that made that whole thing possible. Thank you to Julie at Elaborate Flight of Fancy for our logo and to Joshua Clausen for our music. You can find them both on Facebook, and Joshua is also on SoundCloud. Next episode, you'll get to hear from Alex, Aubrey, and Antra with insights into the upcoming queer cat firing at East Creek, the outlook of East Creek itself, and the wood fire education pedagogy at Utah State University. We'll see you then.